Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to another of the New Abnormal special bonus episodes. Today we have Kevin Cruz, who is a historian from Princeton University, the author of tons of informative Twitter threads, and the author of a couple great books that we'll talk about on this episode. Today, he's going to be here to explain to us about a ton of the subjects he's well-versed in, and we ask him a barrage of questions that we hope you'll enjoy. Hi, Kevin. Hi. We're so excited to have you. It's really, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, so. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So talk to me about, historically, he's the greatest president ever, right? Oh, yeah, no doubt. The accomplishments are long, the record distinguished. Yeah, we're, we're done here. Just a matter of sandblasting uh, the four presidents off Mount Rushmore and making them all for Trump, and we're done. That's right. From what you've seen, what do you think his legacy will be? I think it's going to be a complicated legacy. Uh, I think it's going to be a complicated legacy in that it's mostly bad, but it's bad in a variety of ways. Right. You know, when we, when we think about presidents that we... I don't like the kind of... The numeric rankings feels much too scientific for what we do, but uh, but we generally do have a sense of who's good and who's bad. And when we think about the bad presidents, there are a variety of ways in which they're bad, right? right. There are the ones who are simply bad at the job and incompetent, and a lot of bad things happen on their watch. There are those who are corrupt and engage in criminality uh, and have scandals uh, that, that plague their administration. Uh, and there are those who actively do the country harm through their action or their inaction. And Trump checks all of those boxes. So usually we think about a president being bad in one way. You know, Warren Harding is bad in a different way from Richard Nixon. But Trump kind of runs through all the categories, uh, and it's really remarkable. And what's staggering to me now, you asked for my, my hot take, Historians don't do hot takes, right? We do, we do long, slow, ice-cold takes. Um, <laughs> Uh, a history like revenge is a dish best served cold. Right. But just what we already know now is staggering. And as an historian, I know that we're going to learn a whole lot more in the coming five to 10 years as internal government documents come out, as we learn more through, say, congressional inquiries into what went on through court filings, as insiders start to write their own tell-all books. We're going to learn a lot more. So as bad as we think this presidency is now, as it's coming to a merciful close, uh, it's going to look, I think, even worse uh, in the long run. So you've written about Rudy Giuliani. I feel like Rudy Giuliani and this sort of racist New York-y world is a big part of the Trump presidency. Do you see that? Can you talk to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if you think about, about the kind of the, the politics of Rudy Giuliani, a politics of kind of, you know, as, as Biden said, uh, there's not a line that come out of his mouth. It's not a noun, a verb in 9-11. He really kind of leaned into that, that heightened sense of hyper-patriotism after 9-11. But the real Giuliani was kind of obscured by that moment, which is his longer arc of, of engaging in kind of light reactionary politics, the politics of law and order. We don't often think of him as, as being in that kind of continuum with 
you know, Nixon and George Wallace, but he really did a lot of that in the nineties, the kind of the crackdown on all forms of vice, the broken windows policing, which is ironic given the, the kind of the cronyism and the, the corruption of people like Bernie Couric. That kind of Giuliani influence is certainly clear on Trump. And, and Giuliani, who was at one point going to be the heir apparent to George W. Bush, uh, there was a, the thought that he was going to be the odds-on favorite to win in, in 2008. He crashed and burned. But in a lot of ways, his politics has found its own heir uh, in Donald Trump. Yeah, I wondered about that because of the George Wallace. You know, he's really kind of this amazing racist. The other historical figure that I often think of, and I'm curious to know what you're, if I'm wrong, is Hoover because of the pandemic. A little. In terms of the botched response, there's something to that. And also, like, lying about getting the flu. And- yeah. The Hoover comparison is an interesting one uh, in that we both regard them as failed presidents who mismanaged the massive uh, national disaster on their watch and ushered in a new era uh, with the Democratic politician. In fact, you know, uh, Biden's margin for beating an incumbent was the biggest one since FDR booted Hoover out, out of office. So there's certainly some ties there. But, you know, Hoover was, aside from that glaring failure of the Depression, Hoover was someone who actually had a life of real accomplishments. Trump likes to preen as a self-made man. He's not. He inherited uh, so much from his from his family and traded on his father's name and business. Hoover really was self-made. Hoover was an orphan, shuttled around to different you know family members in, in Iowa, winds up in the first class at Stanford, this brand new school, uh, becomes a, an engineer, a genius, a mining magnet, uh, does all these things, uh, does philanthropy in, in World War I. Uh, is in charge of the the food relief, uh, uh, which basically keeps Belgium from starving. Uh, he does all these incredible things. He, he's he's thought of as a as a, a human wonder. In fact, in 1920, uh, before he beats him in 1932, in 1920, Franklin Delano Roosevelt thinks that that Hoover is one of the brightest stars of the future, and he wishes he would become president. So Hoover had had a really good record until he clearly drops the ball with the depression. But Hoover's inability to do that was really out of a philosophical difference. He really believed in what he called in the title of a 1922 book, American individualism. He thought that the government needed to get out of the way. He was really kind of ideologically driven to that. With Trump, it's not so much a matter of ideology. He's not someone of firm principles on anything. We've seen this. It's just inaction. It's a selfishness, right? And so uh, they both dropped the ball, but I think in very different ways. With Hoover, it wasn't out of spite or laziness or anything like that. It was, it was he, he firmly had this belief. It was a wrong belief, but he, he had this belief. He could act when he wanted to. With Trump, it's just, you know, uh, spite, laziness, and hatred, I think. <laughs> do you think he's also quite stupid? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's, I think there's no doubt about that. Look, we, we all make mistakes. We all misspell words. We all right. misunderstand things at times. But the volume of his errors, the way in which he talks about things, he's got a standard, standard pattern, which I think is, it's funny on, on Twitter, you know, I, I'm an historian, I follow a lot of other academics. We are constantly making this observation. It's not a novel one, but I think it's a very true one, that Donald Trump sounds like the student in your class who has not done the readings, does not know what he's talking about, but just wants to bullshit his way through the conversation, right? <laughs> and that yeah. this comes up time and time again. He's the kid who didn't do, read the book he's doing the book report on. It's all vague generalities. It's, he's got a set of catchphrases he uses to talk his way through it. He doesn't understand it. And, the, and some of his comments reveal that he doesn't even, he doesn't know what he doesn't know, right? He, he, right. He's so far off the rails here. And yet, blissfully unaware of how <laughs> obvious this is to anyone who has a fucking clue, right? He's just... <laughs> 
he's just <laughs> blathering on, right? And it's, and it's really amazing. So no, I don't think he's bright. One of the ways you can tell he's not bright is the fact that he's constantly having to point to his, his Wharton degree, Wharton undergrad. Again, as somebody teaches at the Ivy League, I have a lot of bright students. I also know that that degree is not necessarily a sign that, <laughs> that everyone who comes out of an Ivy League school is a genius, right? Right. So it's definitely, he's gotten along on kind of puffing himself up and pretending to be the best at everything, but he's the smartest. He knows more than the generals. He knows more than the scientists. He knows more than everyone. Um, and, and it's that confidence that I think got him to where he was, but it, it really rests on a on, on a very thin uh, a basis of, uh, of actual knowledge. So you've written a lot about uh, voter rights and civil rights. And I was curious to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about this, the South and... Yeah what is happening, what the sort of historical precedent. Yeah, it really is remarkable. I mean, and I'm someone who's, you know, my primary work is really in the in the 50s and 60s. My current project is, is tracing, you know, in part the wave of voter suppression in the early 60s that really prompted the Voting Rights Act uh, and the way in which that was enforced and broadened and, and the kind of the revolution in real democracy that brought. Uh, it wasn't until that period that we actually had really a full multiracial democracy here in, in this country. We keep talking about going back to 1776. It's really 1965. And so the undoing of that act uh, by the Supreme Court in 2013 is really a huge blow. Can you just back up and speak a little bit about, just for the people who don't know, a little yeah. bit on the background of Reconstruction? We have only ever had 11 African-American senators. I think people would love to know exactly sort of the background on that. In many ways, the effort to suppress the, the vote of African-Americans, especially in the South, has been around since they got the vote. The course of Reconstruction was one in which the new amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and especially the 15th, um, it gave them a new set of securities and rights in America. And there were ones that, these were developments that many white Southern conservatives especially saw as an assault on their own rights, on their own freedoms, on their own status. Uh, and so they resolved right. uh, to push back against that. Uh, and they did this in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century, deepening new ways of either blocking blacks from voting through things like uh, literacy tests, which were never about real literacy, but were always just an excuse to, to find a way to drive black voters away from the polls, through punitive poll taxes where you'd have to pay a certain amount of money uh, to be able to register a vote, which certainly priced out a lot of uh, newly freed slaves, to new schemes that diluted uh, the black votes. In Georgia and Tennessee, they had these schemes that were kind of like the Electoral College, which really uh, gave a lot of weight to rural white areas uh, as a way of downplaying the, the, the presence of black or liberal voters. These measures were, were really, um, uh, really developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and they really did prop up and defend white supremacy across the South. And again, that was the, the explicit purpose. There's not any effort to hide the motivations behind this is not about good government. I mean, they would maybe sometimes say that, but it was very clearly targeting uh, African-Americans. By the mid-60s, this has reached such a, a crisis point, and it's hard for the nation to ignore uh, with the civil rights protests in the South. Selma, most famously, uh, but there were other ones across Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, uh, on and on. Uh, the Voting Rights Act is an effort to undo all of the voter suppression that had happened since Reconstruction. Uh, in fact, the formal title of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I believe, is something like an act to enforce 
the 15th Amendment, which was the amendment that gave everyone the, uh, the right to vote. So the, the connections between the so-called second reconstruction of the civil rights era and the original reconstruction after the Civil War uh, are, are pretty clear. And so the Voting Rights Act finally brought some justice and really brought uh, true democracy to the South. And as a result of a nation, a true multiracial democracy, it really only begins in 1965. And for decades, uh, there were efforts uh, to push back against this, but the Voting Rights Act was renewed and, and supported by the courts and by Congress. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, 2013, uh, with the Shelby County v. Holder decision, uh, that the Supreme Court uh, gutted uh, the Voting Rights Act. Didn't strike it down entirely, but took away the most important part, this uh, requirement that states with a history of discrimination, largely states in the South, had to secure pre-clearance from the Department of Justice if they wanted to put in new changes to their voting laws, to their electoral rules, uh, to polling places, wow. things like that. And, and it kept them in check. And so look at a state like Georgia. Uh, over the years, Georgia tried, I think, uh, had a, a 177 different proposed changes that were struck down by the DOJ. Uh, so they were doing the job. They were monitoring these places. As soon as the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance provision was struck down by the court in 2013, Georgia and other southern states immediately leapt in with new restrictions. Uh, and so cutting down polling places, reducing early voting, instituting new restrictions like voter ID laws, uh, on and on. And in some states, the intent of these laws was just as clear as it had been uh, early on uh, in the late 1800s. So uh, North Carolina, a federal judge found that the new voter suppression laws there were meant to target the African-American community, quote, with almost surgical precision. There's no hiding the intent here. Right. And so we've kind of come full circle back to that earlier stage. What's different now and what gives me hope is that we're seeing rather back in the day, uh, both in the late 19th century and uh, the long 20th century, most of it, it was the Democratic Party in the South that was pushing these changes. That was the party of right. white supremacy and segregation. And that was the party of voter suppression. As Dinesh D'Souza loves to remind you. Yes, yes. As, as if he's the one who's discovered it. Is it is really like the only historical fact he knows, but he's it's, very it's, proud yeah, of it. He's very, he's very surprised by it, yes. I'm not sure how he thinks we teach the Civil War or 20th century political history without that basic fact, but there we are. I, I'm sure everyone else knows that, that the Democratic Party was the party of segregation and white supremacy. But today, the Democratic Party, especially in the South, is being led more and more by African-Americans, by African-American women. Right. And so what's really remarkable, if you look at Georgia today, the state party is led uh, by an African-American. The factions in, the, ha in the, uh, the General Assembly and the state Senate, both led by African-Americans. They just elected the first African-American senator since Reconstruction, uh, Raphael Warnock. And obviously, a lot of this comes from the person who will, might be their next governor, Stacey Abrams, right. uh, who is, with other African-American activists, led the fight on the ground to really push back against us. So, yes, we've gotten renewed levels of voter suppression, but the silver lining here is we've got new levels of voter activism, right? We've overcome the apathy and the inertia of the past things. And it's, it's I think, because the Democrats have finally realized that they can't do this old thing they used to do in the 90s and, and early 2000s of kind of running these uh, moderate white blue dog Democrats who, you know, seem to be just a shade more liberal than uh, their Republican counterparts. And instead realizing that the base of the party, especially in the South, is African-Americans. Uh, and it's time for them, uh, they are leading, and it's time for, uh, for, for them to be, to be the face and the force of the party there. With the Voter Rights Act being stripped, how will Democrats be able to undo this? Well, that's going to be their first order of business. I mean, one of several first orders of business. I guess COVID will probably uh, take, the, take the front place in the stimulus, too. But once they move beyond the emergency measures they're dealing with, 
they've got to really lean into a Voting Rights Act renewal. And so the, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, that, that's on the table uh, has got to be, I think, a primary point of emphasis. And they can do that now. That's why the Georgia wins of, of Ossoff and Warnock, are, I think, are so vitally important, is that it flips that chamber and that this thing, which, which is widely popular, should be able to pass now. Whereas before, if McConnell had still maintained control of the Senate, he would have been able to, to effectively bottle it up. Uh, but now we can actually see some real progress on voting rights. And importantly, the DOJ, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, is now actually interested in these issues too, right? So I think we're going to see greater attention from the DOJ rather than have an administration which hyped up insane claims of voting fraud and rigged elections and all kinds of nonsense. We're actually going to have a Department of Justice that does the right thing and actually promotes free and fair elections across the board. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash I mean, and I think this is going to be a continual tension in the Biden administration with this super conservative Supreme Court now. How will Biden have this Voter Rights Act back if it's been stripped? Do you know the mechanism for that? Or it's just a new act? Yeah, yeah. A new a new act, one that, that would presumably change the language to meet the objections of Shelby V. Holder or at least force the court to reconsider that ruling. Right. You know, a, a lot of Robert's logic in there, and I'm not under any illusion that the, the court is more liberal now than it was in 2013. Yeah, certainly, certainly not. not. Yeah. But Robert's stated logic there was, look, this Voting Rights Act isn't needed anymore. Uh, this is what led to Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, mocking him, and I think rightly so, as saying the majority opinion is like someone um, standing in a rainstorm with an umbrella who says, well, I'm dry right now. I should right. put the umbrella away, right? <laughs> and Robert's claim was, yeah, it's not raining anymore. Well, the country soaked, uh, and and I think it's it's clear that that umbrella actually was needed. So maybe Roberts reconsiders. Who knows? Maybe by the time it takes a while for these laws to actually reach the court, maybe by the time it comes up, there's a new member of the court. Who knows? You know, we're we're far off the range here, but they've got to try, right? They've got to do something about this, if only to put voting rights and voting restrictions into the national conversation, right? And so I think too often Democrats talk themselves out of something. And say, well, it's not going to matter because, you know, Mitch McConnell's going to kill it in the Senate or, or the Supreme Court will strike it down. That's not an excuse. You've got to try, right? You can't be so afraid of getting a loss that you won't even try because then your voters are going to abandon you. And I think rightfully so. So 
Can we just get back to Voter Rights Act in the 60s? Because you've written about that and legacy. One of the things that's really upset me in the Trump administration, and there have been many things, but has been that Trump has sort of found these very religious Jews and said, you know, the Republican Party is the place for you. I mean, obviously, that you you know, in my mind, the people who have the white supremacists are never the place for the Jews. But I'm curious to uh, that this legacy of sort of Jews and African Americans working on civil rights in the South. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, there was absolutely uh, that that strong relationship in the you know really through the late sixties, the wheels start to come off in a little bit in places like you know the Ocean Hill Brownsville uh, strike in New York City, where the you know Jewish teachers are pitted against uh, uh, black parents. Uh, but for most of their time. Uh, the two are are very much in sync, and for obvious reasons that that, that both groups had historically experienced discrimination and recognized uh, that they had a, a common cause to make. Now, it's not to say there there were there were some Jewish segregationists. I wrote a book about Atlanta, and one of the big guys in the state organization for segregationists is a Jewish man from Mercy, from Columbus. Anyway, so so there 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 are some figures out there. At the same time, though, there are prominent people on the civil rights side, like the Temple in Atlanta gets bombed in 1958 for its outspoken support. Uh, of civil rights as early as 58. So there is clearly common cause there. I think what's going on with with Trump these days is that he has used uh, foreign policy uh, and Israel as a, as a way to rally Jewish support here. And he had clearly you know, strong support. Uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, just died uh, with somebody who, had, who was really motivated by that issue, certainly relied on his um, relationship with Netanyahu to, uh, to promote this. And the idea was that if you didn't support Israel in all things, you were somehow anti-Semitic, which was, I think, news to a lot of, a lot of liberal <laughs> Jews in, in America. It's certainly true. Yes. But what Trump does there is he plays into something that had been long a theme on the right, and it comes out of, of evangelical religion, which is evangelicals, uh, say, when I say evangelicals, I mean white conservative evangelicals. There are certainly a lot of evangelicals who don't fit this bill. But white conservative evangelicals long have supported Israel, not out of any real love for Israel, but because they believe in a version of the Bible that calls for Jewish control of Israel as one of the preconditions for the second coming of Christ. So they support Israel now, but only because they believe to a large degree that Israel needs to be uh, led by Jews before it is destroyed. And that'll, uh, that'll wrap things up. So history often points us to understand things that are changing now. You've written a ton about the suburbs. I think one of the things people are most confused about with this recent election is the way suburbs are changing because people kind of can't understand how fast in flux this is. I wanted to see if you had any insight on that since you've written so heavily on this. When we think about suburbs and politics, we need to keep a couple things in mind. One Despite all of us, when we hear the word suburbs, we probably think of a certain kind of suburb, overwhelmingly white, upper middle class, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the Pleasant Valley Sunday uh, scene of lawns and, and, you know, and, and sprinklers and kids playing around. That's one kind of iconic image of the, of the suburbs. There are African-American suburbs and Latino suburbs. There are working class suburbs. There are industrial suburbs. There are a variety of different kinds of suburbs. So just when we hear that word, we got to remember it from the start, even when they were overwhelmingly white, upper middle class and conservative, but that wasn't the only kind, right? Right. But, okay, just take those iconic suburbs that we, that we talk about. We also have to remember they're not static, right? So these suburbs were uh, built up. Some of them created brand new in the 1950s and 60s. But as a state in which people were constantly moving in and out of them, right? 
one of my grad students, uh, former grad student, just finished up, has written a great bit on Levittown. The average family in Levittown, this iconic suburb in Long Island. Yeah, I know it well. Was in and out in like four or five years, right? They weren't laying down long-term roots. So these are constantly communities of transition, right? And at first they were like-minded people and, 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 and people from a similar demographic moving into these suburbs. But they eventually get replaced, right? So my first book, uh, White Flight, is about Atlanta. And I talk about uh, the suburbs around Atlanta. And in the 70s, they are clearly white flight suburbs. They are, you know, 95 to 99% white, upper middle class and higher, and very conservative. This is where Newt Gingrich comes from. This is where uh, Bob Barr comes from. Very conservative forces in the 90s come out of here. But by the early 2000s, these suburbs are maybe only three quarters white. In fact, I think they're both 77% white. Cobb County and Gwinnett County to the northwest, northeast of Atlanta are now 77% white. They're going to be a little more diverse. Well, that process has only continued, right? As the multiracial, uh, multi-class, much more liberal world of Atlanta has spilled across the city limits into these suburbs, and it's really remade these areas. And now they're much more diverse. Even the most iconic conservative suburb in America, Orange County in, in, outside Los Angeles, has trended blue. It went blue in 2018. These suburbs outside Atlanta, which were as iconic a, a conservative spot in the 1990s as you could picture anywhere. There were endless safaris down to Cobb County to understand the, the, the people of of Newt Gingrich's world, like these these diner interviews we do now with Trump voters. There were all these uh, safaris in the 1990s to Cobb County to figure out what was going on with these conservative voters. That area has now gone blue. And that's what really flipped the state to Biden and and won the, the Senate races for Ossoff and Warnock, where these, these suburbs uh, are finally tilting. So we have to think that the suburbs aren't static. You know, I, I talk a lot about how parties change. And, and one of the metaphors I use when I talk about parties changes is, is that they're like a house. And, you know, just because someone lived in, if you know, not all of us, not I don't have houses that are as old as the 1860s. But can you imagine if you had a house that was that old? You're not bound by the people who lived there before you. And so these little houses are actually the same way. People move in. The neighborhoods change. They turn over. There's there, there's a real shift in who's there. And as a result, these spaces that we think of as static and boring and ironbound uh, conservative uh, change too. And, and we've seen them go from, from, from deep red uh, now to pretty blue. It's fascinating. When you see this Trump sort of winning over support in places that we've never seen before, like in in Miami. What do you think Democrats can do to sort of stop that? Well, I think the the Trump support in, in Miami, especially, was was a, a large result of the fact that he kept complaining about Democrats embracing socialism and for and he was doing he was doing that for a reason. Uh, and in Miami, it worked. Uh, to win over, you know, uh, kind of the uh, the old Cuban exile community, but also Venezuelan uh, refugees uh, who really had a particular understanding of socialism that was, you know, not, say, a Denmark, but a much more um, a disastrous turn in, in Latin America. So I'm not sure that's repeatable. But what Democrats can do is uh, what they should always do, which is to, A, uh, do what they do, I think, best, which is to hold people to account. There's often an instinct to to turn the page and, and move on. But Democrats, when they do it right, uh, have proven that, that government actually can have an oversight function, can have an investigatory function, and can bring wrongs to light. 
If they don't do that, it just becomes a he said, she said, right? It's, you know, Trump will complain about, uh, oh, the election was rigged and this was unfair and Democrats will make comments about things that actually did happen uh, and the public will just kind of wash their hands. They've got to be shown the proof of there was wrong. More important than that, though, and so just don't turn the page, but, but actually have some accountability. But more important than that is they've got to provide real concrete proof that the Democrats are different than the Republicans and they can actually get things done. Uh, and here, I think, for all the crises that Biden is inheriting uh, and all the fires he's got to put out, uh, he's actually been given a bit of a gift by the Trump administration and that they so screwed up uh, the COVID vaccine distribution uh, and they so screwed up the stimulus package that Biden's got, I think, two fairly not easy, but doable feats ahead of them that if he can do, will go a long way to earning people's trust and gratitude. Uh, and then the third thing, you know, we, we've joked throughout the Trump administration that hey, it's finally infrastructure week. Right. I think it's finally infrastructure week. I think Biden is somebody who really believes in the power of this. You know, we all right. know his stories of, uh, on Amtrak. Right. He loves infrastructure. He loves infrastructure. But also his big role uh, in the Obama administration was overseeing uh, the stimulus act there. Uh, which was a, a lot of infrastructure and transportation projects. So he's got the experience. We don't talk about, it's kind of a dog that didn't bark, but the fact that Biden oversaw that and there was so little bad news coming out of that in terms right. of botched product projects or, or corruption or mismanagement of funds, that was a real success of the Obama administration. And so I think they're going to lean back into that and make that an emphasis again. So if Democrats do those three things, if they if they hold the Trump administration accountable as the base is demanding it do, right. and as I think... Which is a truth and reconciliation kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're not going to be able to do everything. They're not going to be able to, They're you know, it's a fire like hose. hearings and, yeah. Some kind of hearing, some kind of commission on, on what went wrong with the, the COVID response, on and on. So if they do that, that'll keep the base uh, happy, but also I think make a good case for Democrats to swing voters who need to be... Right show but there actually is a difference between these two groups it's not all this vague deep state uh, but then also do something concrete on the stimulus and concrete on on infrastructure i think he'll be off to a to a solid start thank you kevin my pleasure happy to be here on that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. We're just getting started and don't want you to miss an episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm Molly Jongfast, and he's The Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.